I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Howie Rosen, a behavioral neurologist at the University of California, San Francisco Memory and Aging Center. He evaluates new patients in the memory clinic and provides continued care for some of them in the continuity clinic. Dr. Rosen's primary research interest is in frontal temporal dementia, particularly the disease's effects on emotional symptoms. Dr. Rosen is also a teacher to medical students, residents, and fellows. Welcome, Dr. Rosen, to Dementia Matters. Thanks very much, Nate. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here on this snowy day in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, on today's program, I want to focus on frontal temporal dementia, a condition that is less common than Alzheimer's disease, but equally important to address in clinic and research. So to begin, can you explain to us what is frontal temporal dementia and how is it different than Alzheimer's disease? Um, Frontal temporal dementia is a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, what they have in common is that um, the nerve cells, the neurons are uh, shrinking, um, some of the nerve cells are even dying, and, and uh, that's happening in frontotemporal dementia, similarly to Alzheimer's disease. What's different about frontotemporal dementia than Alzheimer's disease is that, it's, that in Alzheimer's disease, there are specific proteins that have been identified that cause the problem, tau and A-beta, and I'm sure you've talked about those in past uh, uh, podcasts. In frontotemporal dementia, the proteins that are believed to cause the trouble are usually tau, but a different form of tau that's a little bit different than the Alzheimer's tau, uh, and this other protein called TDP43. So in one way that frontotemporal dementia is different than Alzheimer's is which proteins we think are causing the problem. There are other uh, uh, rare varieties of frontotemporal dementia that are also caused by this protein called fused-in sarcoma protein, or FUS. So one way they're different is which proteins cause the problem. The other way they're different is what um, regions of the brain are affected. So in Alzheimer's disease, the regions that are most commonly affected are the hippocampus and nearby structures that are important for memory. And that's why memory is is usually one of the earliest symptoms in Alzheimer's disease. But in frontotemporal degeneration, the disease can either affect specific parts of the frontal lobes that are important for emotions and social behavior, or um, parts of the uh, uh, temporal or frontal lobes that relate to language and communication. So in frontotemporal dementia, the early symptoms are often uh, features of what we call aphasia, which is an acquired disorder of language, or changes in social and emotional functions. And, that, and that's the main problem that, that manifests early. So is it fair to say that the similarity would be this end result of brain cell death and, in essence, dementia, mm-hmm. but some of the key differences, it's a different protein, we think. Mm-hmm. The region of the brain that's affected is different in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then, therefore, the symptoms a person experiences is different. Exactly right. Well, then, in people under the age of 65 who have brain changes, well, how common is frontal temporal dementia? In that age group, so uh, it's important to point out that 
Dementia in general is much less common in people under the age of 65 than over the age of 65. But uh, I'd say probably around 10 to 20 percent of dementia might occur in that age group. And in that age group of the younger than 65, it's believed that frontotemporal degeneration could affect half. Oh, wow. So this is not an uncommon thing for people. No. Is there a genetic component to frontal temporal dementia? There is. So I think it's important to point out that genetics uh, is complicated, needless to say, and uh, sometimes we talk about it in ways that are, um, are too simple, e- even for the layperson. So I always point out that everything about us has a genetic component, our eyes, our hair color, our height, lots of other things. But a lot of those genetic effects are tiny little effects that can um, balance each other. So you might have one gene that maybe makes you likely to be a little taller or a little heavier and another gene that might make you more likely to be a little shorter or a little thinner and similar with your metabolism and lots of other things about us. So in that sense, I think both frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's and probably every other disease we can think of has genetic components. And a lot of times when we talk about genetics, that's what we researchers are studying. There's another kind of genetic risk that we often think of when we're talking about genetics, which is um, because of a uh, particularly abnormal change in the, in the genes, in, a, in a, a gene, that is so problematic that it means that the disease is very likely to occur. And we call that kind of abnormality a mutation. So when people have, so um, mutations can be a cause of, um, of uh, both Alzheimer's and frontotemporal dementia, but in Alzheimer's disease, it's a pretty rare cause. Probably about one or 2% of Alzheimer's disease is due to that kind of uh, genetic abnormality, a mutation. Um, in frontotemporal dementia, it's probably a higher proportion, maybe 10 to 20%. Um, so, so that's a long answer to your question. The short answer being yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate what you're saying that when it comes to genetics, there's, it's not just the genes, it's the interactions of our genes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I haven't heard that said before, so I, I think that's a really good point. Now, we're talking in our podcast about risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Are the risk factors not genetic for frontal temporal dementia? I think one way to answer that is I think a lot of the risk factors that we talk about in Alzheimer's are probably risk factors for every dementia. Uh, the problem is it's not as easy to prove it because um, because these risk factors have small effects that are that are only visible, relatively small effects, that are only visible if you get large numbers of patients. Uh, Uh, hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands, and that's where we know most of what we know from Alzheimer's, is looking at data like that. It's not easy to get thousands of patients with frontotemporal degeneration to demonstrate that these effects might be the case. Um, We have some recent findings from a study that uh, we did that uh, hopefully will be published uh, later this year or early next year that actually look at people with a genetic form uh, of frontotemporal degeneration. And we actually looked at um, uh, reading habits and um, and exercise habits, and both of those uh, have been uh, shown to be um, behaviors uh, that uh, influence the likelihood of developing Alzheimer's down the road. And it turns out that 
um, they seem to influence the rate of progression in these mutation carriers with frontotemporal dementia as well. So that's one example. And I think we're seeing similar findings like that from other studies of genetic frontotemporal degeneration. So I think that's some evidence of maybe what I said earlier, which is I think the answer is a lot of those uh, Alzheimer's risk factors may apply much more generally. And fortunately, recommending exercise and cognitive engagement and healthy foods is not, it seems to benefit more than just one thing. I'm never going to feel bad about recommending those. <laughs> now, what is the most common symptom of someone who comes in the clinic and you end up diagnosing with frontal temporal dementia? Um, well, about half of the time, it's uh, these changes in social and emotional functions. So uh, those would be things like um, loss of uh, social decorum. And what I mean, the, the easiest way that I ask about that in a clinic is I'll ask people if they're a family member, um, uh, and we'll talk about the fact that it's hard to ask the person themselves, but uh, if you, you can ask their family member, has your father, uh, husband, who, uh, mother, whoever, forgotten how to behave in public? And, and uh, I think that that allows people to kind of picture the kinds of symptoms we're talking about. And then I'll give examples, like eating off other people's plates at restaurants or um, uh, talking about people that you don't know in ways that you ought not to do, like uh, calling people fat out loud at a mall or um, things like that. And the thing is, all our lives are a little different. There are too many examples to come up with one that fits everybody. But those kinds of examples usually trigger people to start thinking of, well, yeah, they, they did do that. And so it's those kinds of symptoms. Loss of empathy often looks a little different. Um, that's another one we see a lot um, where people seem to uh, not uh, care about uh, people as, as much as they used to. And that usually is most manifest when something happens that requires you to step up your emotional support and energy. So somebody might have an injury or go to surgery, um, and the person with the disorder doesn't respond in the way that their loved one would expect them to or that they would have in the past. So uh, I might give an example of um, uh, we've had patients who came home from gallbladder surgery, and that night their husband is asking them, well, why don't you go cook dinner? You cook dinner every night. What's going on? And they wouldn't offer to bring them food in bed or other things to help them recover from the injury. Um, so things like that. And sometimes if no events come up like that, that you know, where it's obvious to the family that, uh, that a reaction should have happened and it didn't, it's not so easy to detect this. So you have to really know to ask for it, and it, depending on what's gone on the last few years in different people's lives, it might be easier or harder to pick it up. So that's the social and emotional thing. I have to point out that there's a whole other, that's about half of frontotemporal degeneration, and the other half is these language dis disorders. And so they can come up, the most common, uh, one of the more common symptoms is profound loss of the ability to use words and recognize words. So. Um, it's a normal phenomenon as we age that we all have a little more trouble retrieving the word we want. Um, so I don't want to say that everybody with that problem has frontotemporal dementia. Far from it. But um, if it becomes bad enough 
that it interferes significantly with communication. Um, that could be the sign of a, of a neurodegenerative disease. And it could be Alzheimer's disease too, but in frontotemporal dementia, that could be a profound symptom. And one of the unique things about frontotemporal dementia is in that situation, you could sometimes not even recognize the word. So if I can't think of a word and I'm grasping for it and you realize I'm trying to say the word, this thing that's picking up my voice, what's it called? Oh, yeah. Right, a microphone. Yeah, that's the word. So if I do that and you say microphone, I recognize that you've said the correct word and I say that's the one I want. And I, So there's no problem with me knowing what the word is and what I'm supposed to do with it. I just need uh, – I couldn't come up with it on my own. Um, but in front of temporal generation, they might say, microphone? Maybe. I'm not sure. And in fact, they might even do that when people say the words that uh, not in that context. They might say, oven? Now, oven, I should know what that is. What's that again? Oven is a very simple word, but it would be more likely with the words that we use less commonly, but that that person should have known. I had one example of a patient who uh, they were watching television and the term circumcision came up. In the, on the television, and he said, circumcision, now, what's that again? And this would be a very rare symptom in Alzheimer's. I, I've really never heard of it because of what regions of the brain can be affected in Alzheimer's, but it can happen in frontotemporal dementia. The last thing, another common kind of uh, language symptom, which is different than the one I just described, um, is a hesitancy and stumbling kind of difficulty with speech where you can't get your words out and you trip over the syllables and um, and it's very difficult to uh, enunciate essentially and your speech gets broken up and and um, well broken up into pieces and kind of robotic in some cases um, uh, because of that nature and that's a different another yet another form of frontotemporal degeneration. And so while these symptoms are different than mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease, you, as you said, there's some overlap, and sometimes atypical Alzheimer's disease can look like this. So how do you diagnose frontotemporal dementia? Um, it really, the, the main, uh, the core approach is careful questioning. Um, so need, I even gave some hints in talking about this, about, you know, I've, I've developed, and I think each clinician who gets experience with this develops their own kind of a, toolkit of questions they like to ask, which are meant to try to bring out if some of those symptoms are there or not. And so really, it's very uh, um, knowledgeable way of looking at what questions to ask. And also, you know, hearing the answers many times over and over again, you start to know which ones sound like they need more follow-up and which not. And essentially, that kind of questioning is the main way to get there. Um, so it, therefore, it relies on a very committed and reliable uh, collateral informant, a family member or f- close friend, who can tell about the uh, changes that have happened over time. Um, and um, and in addition, we do use uh, uh, other testing to help reassure ourselves that if we've made this diagnosis, that the additional evidence supports it. So uh, neuropsychological testing is you know a common tool in our business. And that can document that um, certain kinds of reasoning and problem-solving abilities are impaired, and we would see that too. Um, so the neuropsychological testing can be helpful. Um, uh, and then um, 
uh, brain imaging can be helpful in that there is a uh, typical pattern of brain atrophy or volume loss that we can see uh, that we can recognize even visually looking at the MRI. But um, those uh, images can sometimes be misleading. Um, and similarly, these neuropsychological tests can be um, abnormal for other reasons or not abnormal, even though somebody has frontotemporal dementia. So they have to only be used as extra um, evidence when you feel like you have a history that points in that direction. So similar to Alzheimer's disease, there is no definitive one test, one blood test or scan that can tell you it's frontotemporal disease. That's correct. Now, a common question that I get in clinic about Alzheimer's disease is, what does this course look like? And I will often tell people, Alzheimer's disease is progressive, but it's gradual. You're going to see different symptoms, but overall, it's one of decline. Is that similar for frontal temporal, or is there a different course? No, it's very similar um, uh, uh, in that sense that you mentioned. It's gradual, and it, over months to years is when you'll notice change rather than weeks to days. Um, uh, I often make the additional point, even in Alzheimer's disease, that that rate of change isn't constant for an individual either. So somebody might have kind of a slow and insidious change over the last couple of years, but then they have kind of a bad year where their change seems to be a little faster, and after that they might plateau and slow down a bit, or sometimes if everything's faster, everything really is faster after that. And I tell people that because I think it's natural for us to want to extrapolate from what we've seen to what we think will happen in the future or to assume that being at a certain stage means that you have X number of years left. And I think those rules don't apply very well in any of these neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and I think there are even a lot of physicians who talk about them as if they do apply, and that really is often that helpful for patients. I think you have to be pretty open-ended about when you expect something to happen, although we can't pretend we shouldn't expect that. Things will happen. The one thing I'll say about frontotemporal dementia is that on average, unfortunately, the course is faster than Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, some people, uh, some studies have shown twice as fast. And there's another phenomenon that happens in frontotemporal degeneration, which is that you can, as an additional feature, get um, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, which is also sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a disease of the muscle, the nerves that supply the muscles. And that's a very debilitating disease that usually causes um, physical dysfunction and um, uh, a lot of disability very quickly. And in cases like uh, in about 10 to 15% of frontotemporal degeneration, is also associated with ALS developing. And in those cases, unfortunately, the course can be very fast, maybe only a couple of years from the development of the ALS symptoms to dying. And unlike Alzheimer's disease, there are no specific medication treatments for FDLD, no FDA-approved ones. So I wonder, what can people do once they've been diagnosed, or what, what do you recommend in your clinic? Um, well, uh, I think even in Alzheimer's disease, although there are treatments, many of the problems that we have to face are not very well addressed with medication. Um, and so uh, even in Alzheimer's disease, there are many social and emotional problems that are different than the kind we see in, in frontotemporal dementia, but they require us to take a different approach. Um, and in FTD, those are the core features. So what I mean by a different approach is to try to treat 
behavioral problems, in other words, problems of social and emotional function, a lot of it is about understanding the person's environment, trying to teach the family how to adjust their responses so that they don't exacerbate the person's um, uh, emotional trouble. Um, I, a lot of us, uh, um, we, we have natural responses like, don't you remember that? And of course, in Alzheimer's disease, they don't remember that. And we have to teach ourselves to not say that. Um, and similarly, we have lots of other natural ways that we interact with each other, which serve us very well when all of our brains are functioning normally, but have to be adjusted. So I think uh, family and, and friend education is part of it. Sometimes moving or changing the environment to lessen the problem is part of it. Um, so I th And a lot of that comes with expertise. So finding access to a, a clinic or a group that has a lot of uh, experience in this kind of thing can help the, uh, those things get implemented a little more effectively. And like all treatments of that kind of thing, it's never going to be 100% perfect. I usually tell families that if you get a 50% improvement in behavioral trouble, that's a great outcome. And it's very important to set our expectations reasonably. Um, so that's a, um, there are some, I, I think it's important that there are some uh, treatments that don't get used enough that might have value. I think in the setting of a, a disease that we know will deteriorate over time, um, kind of traditional therapies like speech therapy and occupational therapy often are not applied out of this kind of pessimism that, well, the disease is just going to work past this and why should we bother? But I think they can be helpful. And I, I often say we have to press our colleagues who are in that uh, um, uh, area to go ahead and do the work anyway. And of course, some people are naturally wanting to do it, but others may need a little pressure, but that could help. There are some uh, experimental approaches to speech and language therapy that are being looked at now that appear to be promising. Um, there are some uh, also even some other kinds of therapies. I don't, I don't know if you ever talked about a therapy called uh, magnetic stimulation or mm -hmm. There's a the kind of therapy called transcranial magnetic stimulation where we apply very um, uh, small, basically magnetic pulses to the brain to kind of change the electrical current in the brain uh, um, transiently. And uh, that therapy is used in depression sometimes and, uh, and in some neurological settings. Uh, it's um, still being developed, but they're trying it in aphasias and it looks like it might be promising. Mm -hmm. Um, there might be some papers about that in the next year or so. Um, and of course, we're working hard to try to develop drugs for these diseases that would actually uh, clean up these proteins or address the damage they're causing in some other way. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned family, though, because even with Alzheimer's disease, this is a disease that affects more than one person. And, right. and being able to train and educate family members is a really important thing. Now, but with frontal temporal dementia or de degeneration affecting different parts of the brain, there are probably unique experiences that caregivers and family members have with this disease particularly. Yeah. What kinds of things do you see in clinic? I think that, you know, another question we've learned to ask is, has the person's personality changed? And, and that often is the right entry into the family explaining symptoms that help us make a diagnosis. And the reason I say that is that's not a question where you get a yes very often in Alzheimer's disease. So I think somehow, and I think that's an interesting question itself, what is our personality, um, seems like we don't think 
the average person doesn't think of having a good memory or a bad memory or um, as part of our personality. It's more about how we behave toward each other. And so even as memory declines, a, a lot of people wouldn't say they're the different person. But in frontotemporal dementia, that's quite an early phenomenon with the social and emotional variety, is that the family member feels like a different person. And that puts an extra burden on their family to be sympathetic to their problem and to care for them. Um, because, you know, if somebody with Alzheimer's is suffering and you want to help them, uh, they often show appreciation in some way or another, but a lot of times frontotemporal dementia patients may not. It all, and so it, it's more hurtful and difficult to kind of stick with it. Often before, you know, there are many social and emotional things that happen before the diagnosis. You, uh, I don't know if you can ask me about this, but frontotemporal dementia, if it sounds hard to diagnose, I'll tell you it is. And part of the reason it is is because many, many, many physicians recognize that declining memory could be a sign of Alzheimer's disease. But when we hear about social and emotional changes, most clinicians don't think of a neurodegenerative disease. They think of depression or other psychiatric illnesses or late, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, late life. No, it's, I started that one, but it's not a midlife crisis. Yeah. That's really, so, you know, if somebody goes out and spends too much money, that's usually a psychiatric illness or them being bored in midlife. Um, and often that's true, but it can be a sign of a disease in these cases. And so all that's gone on. So we've had families, uh, couples that are pretty much on the verge of divorce, before, by the time they get to us because this disease has, has um, you know, decimated their relationship so much. And sometimes the fact that we can diagnose and say it's not them, it's this disease, can help. But sometimes all the emotional toll that these take, that this disease has taken, even that's not always enough. But it's hugely helpful to kind of reframe things for a family and say, you know, it's not that they stopped loving you. It's that this disease has really taken their ability to show it and to respond to you in the way they would have. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, we have a very strong community network and support mm -hmm. system through our community organizations and memory cafes and things like that. Is there something specific for people with frontal temporal dementia? Um, so I'll point out that, you know, one of, I think, the leaders in helping us as a community develop that network for Alzheimer's disease is the Alzheimer's Association. And I think uh, the Alzheimer's Association has an awareness of these other dementias. Somebody pointed out to me that, that the name of the Alzheimer's Association used to be Alzheimer's and Related Dementias Association, but it was harder to say. So they got rid of that. But... Um, but my point is they are aware of it, and, and I think they can try to connect one to resources. But more importantly, I want to point out there is a special organization called the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. It's based in Philadelphia, but they have a website, and they're very committed to trying to connect people with resources to help them. And because this is a less common disorder, sometimes those resources are um, uh, might be a collection of people far away, but who might to get, get together on a, a phone meeting every month or, uh, or a, a, a web-based uh, support group and things like that. And certainly uh, in many communities, there's a, a specialty center like this one that knows a lot about all kinds of degenerative diseases. And so they might have special resources for more unusual uh, 
situations like this. And with that, I would like to end Dementia Matters and welcome you back again in the future. Thanks very much. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Abishir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.